The title of my sermon this morning is Ambassador Affluenza. By way of introduction, let me say something about the title and these two words, Ambassador and Affluenza. In my sermon last Sunday, we explored the biblical language of ambassadorship and the related imagery of embassy. Uh, these uh, images of embassy, this, this word ambassador, we looked at how the scripture uses those to describe our calling in Christ. That is, the church of Jesus Christ is a kind of embassy for God's kingdom, and, and we are ambassadors of that embassy in this age. Christ's kingdom, in his own words, in John 18, 36, is not of this realm. So then, as an embassy, we are a piece of that realm in, 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 in the kingdom that is to come. We are representing that realm in this realm as his ambassadors in this embassy here at Delray Church. Now, an embassy is a place in a given land that represents a foreign land. An embassy has a body of diplomatic representatives from that foreign land who are sent to work there and to represent the nation. Though the embassy is in a foreign land, there is a sense in which when you, when you walk into the embassy, you are standing in, in, that, in that, place that, that place that's representing another place, a foreign land. When you walk into that embassy, you are standing in the nation that it represents. Uh, typically, the local police and security forces uh, are not allowed to enter into that place without permission of the ambassador, even though the embassy is in that homeland. So it, it's like you're stepping into another nation. When you, when you get into that embassy in a foreign land, it's like you're stepping into your motherland when you go into that embassy. It's like those big green pipes on that video game, uh, Mario Brothers, that, that you go down it and it leads you into another dimension. So too, the church of Jesus Christ is like that. When we gather, it's like we're going into the green pipe and this is a worship warp zone entering into the presence of God where we come and we realize our sacred calling as his diplomatic ambassadors. What an amazing reality. If you missed last week's sermon, do make sure to listen to it online. It, it, it's my prayer that this biblical imagery of embassy and the scriptural language of ambassadorship will empower and excite us as a church and as individuals for our mission field here in Los Angeles where God has placed us to be His embassy of His kingdom come. What a joy! What an honor that we have been given to be an embassy of the kingdom to come here in this place, in this corner of Los Angeles. I hope this reality sets a fire beneath us that will overflow in worship, holiness, good works, and evangelism all around this city and give us eyes to see the lost with heaviness and compassion, knowing that the gospel that has been entrusted to us is our only hope for rescuing spiritual foreigners and giving them asylum through God's embassy, Christ's church. Okay, so we have the word ambassador in the sermon title explained by way of introduction. I've given you some review of last week's sermon to remind you of this word ambassador. But what about this second word, affluenza? Well, affluenza is a word that is used today to describe the social phenomenon of people who are not excited about their lives. Uh, mind you, the term affluenza isn't used for uh, poor people or sick people who, who you'd understand. Yeah, they're not excited about their lives. You're, you're poor and you're sick and you're, you're dying. Uh, yeah, you're, you, of course, we understand you're not excited about your life. So the term isn't used for the, the poor and the sick and those we'd understand wouldn't be excited about their lives. But the, the term is used for those who have a lot to be thankful for but are not. Affluenza is a term that is used to describe uh, people who are well off and yet they are unfulfilled and unexcited. They are dissatisfied with their lives and often they are chasing other things to try to make themselves happy. There was a series called Affluenza that PBS produced and in it they followed folks who were chasing the consumerized version of the American dream. As well, they, they, in, this, in this show, they interviewed those who were resisting overconsumption and affluenza to live a simpler life with less shopping, a smaller home, and, 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 and that resulted in giving more time for their friends, their family, and more time for volunteering and finding joy in resisting this culture of overconsumption. 
Speaking of overconsumption, I have seen stats that show that Americans who make up only 5% of the world's population use nearly a third of its resources and produce almost half of its hazardous waste. Our American dream is not cheap, and it's told that it is taking on people, families, communities, churches, and even the planet is heavy. Affluenza is taking away our joy as it lies to us telling us about all the stuff that we need in order to be happy and fulfilled, and yet it doesn't deliver on that fulfillment and happiness that it promises, because it's a liar. Now, when I think of this social phenomenon of affluenza, and I see it personally in, in some people I know and love, it makes me think about the Christian life. It makes me think about the state of the Church of Jesus Christ in North America. Uh, sure, we are a country with many mega churches. We are a country with many who self-identify as Christian, but when you compare it, those who identify as Christian and churches in this country, when you compare those to the Scripture, we can see the superficiality and shallowness of most, if not all, of it. The great theologian J.I. Packer once commented that America's Bible Belt is a thousand miles wide and one inch deep. This weekend, I was reading uh, Barna's most recent State of the Church report, uh, which they produced after doing a year-long research project exploring congregations across North America. They have data uh, on about 100,000 self-identifying Christians for over more than a couple of decades, so it gives really powerful insight into the state of the church today. Sadly, much of what is in the most recent report is quite sad. We are, we, are, we are seeing what Packer said is actually the case. We are, we are seeing a decline. We are, we, are, we are seeing this shallowness. We are seeing a lack of, of depth in the church. Other studies are showing the same thing, and anecdotally, I see it. There is a kind of spiritual affluenza that has come over the church. And remember that affluenza is used for those that have it all, and in this case, we believers, we truly have it all. We have been rescued from slavery to sin. We have been spared of the very fires of hell. And in addition to this rescue and this sparing, we have been adopted by the Father above and have been loved by His Son. And, and speaking of fire, we have been given the holy fire of God's Holy Spirit in us to fill us. We've, we're ambassadors. It doesn't get any more exciting than that to to be adopted and to be his ambassadors, his diplomatic representatives in this place. And yet many believers, they're not excited about it. Many are going through the motions. The fire is gone. They've grown cold. The Bible does not excite them. Being in church on Sunday is not the highlight of their week. And many sporadically attend, if at all, not to mention involvement during the week and fellowship and, and service with believers from their local church. There's an absence of activity there is a, 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 a lack of holiness in the church. Many are consuming pornography, consuming substance abuse. Many are indifferent to godlessness, prayerlessness, unforgiveness, divisiveness, gossip, greed, and the list goes on. But meanwhile, they are not indifferent to other passions that occupy them like politics. Oh, they're very passionate about politics. Very passionate about entertainment very passionate about other things like, oh, fitness or, or hobbies or, you know, knickknacks and the sort. They, they're excited about those things, but they've stopped in their excitement in Christ. They've stopped growing in Christ. They're not on mission with this church. They, they, they are, are, are like affluent ambassadors, and hence the title of today's sermon. In today's sermon, I'm going to take you into the Gospel of Luke in the 16th chapter, and we are going to study a section of Christ's teachings to his disciples in which he challenges them against affluenza and he calls them to action. So please turn in your Bible to the Gospel of Luke and find your way to chapter 16 where we find a very important lesson from our Lord. In this teaching, Jesus talks candidly to his disciples about using their money for mission. You know, money is something that plays into this phenomenon of affluenza. Those with affluenza have money and they want more of it, specifically in hopes that more of it will make them happy and fulfill them. This leads them into overwork, overwork on one extreme, overwork and stress on one extreme, 
And then in another extreme, this can lead them into a, a paralysis. They're, they, they're paralyzed, they're sluggish, they're, they're depressed, and they sort of stop getting out, and there's a lack of action. So affluenza can, can close you off from others and just make you sluggish. On the other hand, it can make you stressed. Jesus does not want his disciples to be stressed or sluggish. He does, he does not want them to give in to these things. And so in Luke 16, we find this important parable. Now, a parable is a story. We often describe them as, as uh, uh, an earthly story with a heavenly message. It's, uh, he's going to give a parable, and this parable is going to have a lot to say about this topic of money and mission, uh, about this topic of affluenza and growing cold. Uh, Jesus has, of course, a lot to say about this outside of Luke 16. We would, we would be here uh, all morning. We'd be here all week if we were to study what Jesus has to say about this, uh, this, this notion of affluenza and how money and stuff can bog us down. But with Luke 16 in front of us, allow me to give you some context for the text. So you have this first point on your outline, the preliminaries. The preliminaries are context. Before we start reading Luke 16, let's have uh, some wherewithal about the Gospel of Luke that we've opened our Bibles to. So Luke is writing a history of the historical Jesus of Nazareth. Luke is detailing, as he opens his account, the birth of Jesus, and then he begins to transition into the history of Jesus' ministry. Uh, he highlights Jesus' ministry to those who are considered in that society in first century Rome when he's writing, to be outsiders and untouchables. Follow me. The gospel uh, bookends by recording details about Jesus' atoning death on the cross, and lastly, it, it, it ends with the ascension of Jesus and the commission of his disciples to continue this work of going to these outsiders and those on the margins all the way to the ends of the earth. Luke's gospel reveals as well as you study it, that this man of history, this Jesus of Nazareth, is more than a man of history. He's God of eternity, specifically God the Son in the flesh, who comes as the anointed one, or as we say, Christ, or as the ancient uh, Hebrews would have understand, the Mashiach, the Messiah of ancient Israel. And, and as Messiah, as, as this historical figure, we, we see Luke highlighting how, as I said, he's reaching out to the outsiders. He's reaching out to the outcasts, those who are outside of the people of Israel, those who are outside of the Jewish community and the Jewish covenant given by God, those who are outside, who hit the readers of this would have viewed with disdain. Now, the Gospel of Matthew and other Gospels, when you compare and contrast them, you, you see they have different emphases. They have different things that they highlight. So, like the Gospel of Matthew, for example, highlights the ministry of Jesus to Israel in the Jewish community. He highlights that. He, Matthew traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to the father of the Jewish people, Abraham. Luke, on the other hand, traces the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam, who is the father of all peoples highlighting God's heart for everyone, in particular for the outsider. Now, Luke is surely concerned with the insiders. He is concerned for Israel and the Jewish community. But uniquely among the four Gospels, he highlights Jesus' heart for the weak, the unworthy, the poor, the marginalized, the disabled, and the unwanted. These are preliminaries we need to have in mind as we're stepping into this section of Luke. The narrative of Luke's gospel moves from Galilee to Jerusalem, geographically, as he's reaching out to people on the margins, as he's making way there from Galilee to Jerusalem. He goes for those on the margins. He goes to those that the spiritual community would have viewed, as I said, with disdain. He goes to those who are rejected. The, the structures of Luke and these narratives of Jesus' ministry around these geographical locations, in them we'll, we'll see him reaching out and we'll see him pulling his disciples in and, and teaching them, hey, look at what's going on. Hey, let me tell you more about who, who I am and, and what this ministry is all about and this thing that I'm building that you guys are, are going to launch, the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus' journey from Galilee to Jerusalem uh, co comes into conflict with the temple and with various leaders of the day. On his way to Jerusalem, in chapter 9, verse 51, through chapter 19, verse 44, Jesus starts to find a great deal of hostility and opposition from the spiritual community, specifically those who are known as the Pharisees. So, so in chapter 14 through chapter 16, Jesus faces off with these Pharisees, the spiritual leaders of the culture. 
By the way, the Pharisees are, are the hard-working, middle-class folks who were respected and revered. Now, oftentimes, uh, those who are familiar with the New Testament, they see the word Pharisee and they think, oh, bad guys. No, 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 no. for the original audience, these are the good guys. These are the respected guys. The, these are the revered guys. These are the smart guys. And they're not high-faluting people. They're middle-class, hard-working people. And so, so, so as you read the text and you see they don't like Jesus, it's, it's kind of like watching mom and dad fight with each other for his disciples, because you go, well, but these are the smart, hardworking guys. Why don't they like our rabbi? Jesus confronts their attitudes towards the untouchables and the outsiders, which he diagnoses as a symptom of their heart and specifically of their affluenza, their love for money and also their self-righteousness. You have Luke 16 in front of you. Draw your eyes at verse 14. What do you see in verse 14 about these Pharisees? It says they were what? Lovers of money. And it goes on to say that they were listening to Jesus' teaching and they were scoffing at him. They're scoffing at him. His, his teaching hit something and they didn't like it. This happens. This happens when you're teaching God's word. Uh, those who don't come ready to, to obey His Word, ready to conform to the Word, will, will scoff at, at, at the Word. This comes when you bring truth to a situation. Those who don't want the truth are going to scoff at it and, and take it personally or something. You, know, you, you, you see this uh, in social media all the time. Someone will post something that is true, and, and, and it'll prick people who, who, who are, are that thing. You know, you, you might post about uh, someone being divisive or something, and the divisive person decides to get divisive because they were pricked, and rather than letting that pricking soften their heart and bring them to repentance and faith, they, they decide to attack. They decide to turn it. They decide to gaslight. And it goes on and on and on. They're scoffing at him. Why? Because he has pricked them. With what? He's been talking about the preoccupation of money and stuff, a kind of affluenza, you see. So then, for context, while in the midst of the mounting opposition of the Pharisees, where we're stepping into this passage, Jesus provokes the accusations of the hearts of the spiritual leaders. And here in Luke 16, verses 1 through 13, we see him doing it with a parable of a manager and a rich master. A parable, again, an earthly story with a heavenly message. This parable is going to prick their hearts. And often Jesus uh, preaches in these and teaches in these parables to, to speak in code so that those who, who are scoffing and those who come with uh, twisted motives are, are, aren't going to totally get it. And, th and then it causes the disciples to really press in as they listen to the parable and go, who is he talking about? What's going on here? And then they often ask him questions, and the narrative unfolds the answers. Okay, so this parable, we're going to see in the text, it, there's a parts to it. And the first part is from chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. 8a, the first part of verse 8. And then the second is an application that moves from 8b through verse 13. And I will move through and we will unpack it. So now let's move from these preliminaries to the parable. In the first two verses, we're introduced to the main characters and the setting. Let's read the text. Verse 1. Now he was, Jesus, now he, Jesus, was also saying to the, the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. So here you have on the outline, we, we meet the characters as he starts the parable. And there are two main characters, a rich dude and the rich dude's manager. Now in Galilee, remember we're moving from Galilee to Jerusalem, in Galilee many men acquired great wealth through large land estates. Many of them would rent out their land to tenant farmers who would use the land for crops and then they would sell those crops in the market you know, like Kirkland or whatever. Kirkland has, you know, has all these people making stuff for them, right? And, but, but, you know, Costco's like the big daddy or whatever. So you'd have this big daddy who like owns this big old thing and there's different pieces to it that are making, you know, crops and selling them in the markets and then the big daddy's getting all the money from it and he's getting rich off of this. Rich men with such estates would employ managers to watch over their lands and then collect the rents from the farmers and, and collect profits off of things that they sell and whatnot. 
Now, as well, at this time, slavery was rampant in the Roman Empire. So a lot of times these managers weren't like free-willing employees, they were actually slaves. Many wealthy men would, would actually, as a part of their wealth, get people in debt bondage, and they would use that debt bondage to enslave them. Slavery in the Roman Empire wasn't like slave, the transatlantic trade slavery that we think about in the North American context or you know, the so-called New World or whatever, as you think about the Ivory Coast and black bodies being uh, enslaved and, and sent west uh, to, 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 to suffer in, in horrible conditions, a race-based slavery like we see in the modern world in the history of North America. This slavery is much different. When you owed someone money, you, you would go into slavery to them. That's how you settled your debt. And so the, slavery is just all over the place. You sort of lose your life if you get in over your head. And all of us would go, dang, that would be horrible because I'm sure there's a lot of Amex and, uh, you know, MasterCard and whatever debt in the room. But, you know, then you would just, you would be working for Amex. You know what I mean? You got you to pay that off. And, and they would trap you in it. They would trap you in it. They would charge you uh, fees as a part of your slavery, and then just you can't pay it off, and you just get trapped. And so, so this dude who we meet, who is manager, it's very likely the case that he, he's a guy who, who, who is caught in the system. He's got into a, a system that is just keeping people in debt, and it's very likely he, he's enslaved. Okay, so, so with that in mind, we've got the characters, we've got a little bit of sociocultural background, let's come back to the text in this parable. The immediate setting presents a dilemma as news comes to the, the shot-collar, big-baller rich man that his manager is squandering, the text says. And so draw your eyes at verse 2, and, and so he called to him and he said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Give him an accounting for your management, for you can no longer be my manager. Dun, 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 dun. Okay, so we move now from the characters into the conflict, the context in the conflict. So, so the rich man hears that the manager is squandering his possessions. You know what squandering is? It's stealing. It's wasting. It's misusing. He's, he's jacking stuff. You know, he's jacking stuff. He's disrespecting stuff. Now, now we don't like it when, when people take our stuff or waste our stuff or trash our stuff. You don't, you don't like it when, when, when someone scratches your car. You don't like it when you, when you buy something and give it to someone and they, and they waste it. You, you don't like that. And all the parents in the room know what I'm talking about because your kids do it all the time. Speaking of scratching cars, my car's scratched from those stupid scooters going by the car in the driveway. Just scratch, 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 scratch. You buy kids stuff and you're like, really? You already ruined that? That was brand new. Are you kidding me? You're just constantly in this state of like, I know, I know the feeling. I'm feeling you, rich guy. I give people stuff and they, they mess it up. I won't go on. My kids are in the room. They'll feel like I'm picking on them. But anyway, there's a, there's a guy and he's saying, hey, you're squandering my stuff. I, I don't like that. This, this is, I'm, I'm not feeling good about what you're doing with my stuff. So he begins to interrogate the manager's stewardship. The rich guy threatens that you can no longer be my manager. Reminds me of that uh, when, when Trump wasn't president and people didn't have all their opinions about the guy, uh, when he had the show The Apprentice, uh, and, and, and everyone generally, you know, liked the guy because we loved to watch the show. We loved to hear him say, what? You're fired. You know, and everyone, yeah, yeah, he's just firing fools. This is great. Yeah, I like this show. He just fires people. So it's sort of this Trump moment where, like, he's about to drop the you're fired on him. And so, so the dude, likely a slave, but definitely a manager of some sort, is seriously threatened. This is the conflict. And, and now this is where the plot begins to thicken in Jesus' parable. Verses 3 through 7, we start to see a rising action. So we've discussed the characters, the conflict, and now let's look at the climax. Draw your eyes at the, at the text, verse 3. The manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me. So master language, again, probably a manager of kind of a slave sort. What am I going to do about this? He's taking the management away from me. I am not strong enough to dig, and I am uh, ashamed to beg. I, 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 I know what I'll do so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. Uh, and then he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? 
And the dude says, uh, 100 measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write out 50. And then he said to another, hey, how, how much do you owe my master? And he said, uh, 100 measures of wheat. And he said to him, hey, hey, take, take your bill and just write out 80. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted, what does the text say? Shrewdly. Now let's, let's stop right there for a second because the parable has this rising action. He's about to get fired and he's going, I, I got to do something about this. So we see the manager ponders a plan to salvage his employment in white collar work. He, he, does, he doesn't want to do the field work. He, he likes, you know, being inside the plantation office. A white collar worker managing a rich master's estate. That, that's what I'm talking about. That's, I don't want to be out in the field. Perhaps due to physical incapabilities or he's just a weak, weak man with soft hands or whatever. You know, he doesn't, want to, he doesn't want to do that stuff. As well, it's shameful in that, in that culture, you know, to beg for money or whatever. He, he doesn't want to do that. He's, he's got soft hands. He sits in an office all day watching YouTube and checking his stocks and watching the sports stats and shooting the breeze at the water cooler, updating his Facebook, you know, stealing company time. And that's, that's the life that he's on. He's a slacker and a softy. He is unable to find blue-collar work. The man says to himself, I'm, I'm not strong enough to dig. Again, very likely a master-slave situation. This guy owns a lot of land and a lot of people, and I'm going to put you out in the field and have you digging ditches, bro. I gave you this cool office gig, and this is what you do. You're, you're about to go dig for some ditches. I don't want, I don't want to dig. Further, I, I, don't, I don't want to run around begging for money. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be a digger or a beggar. Scholars note that begging was considered a very shameful life in that culture. The Jewish source Sirach actually says, and I quote from Sirach 40:28, "It is better to die than to beg." Uh, they hadn't heard the TLC song about "Ain't Too Proud to Beg." They, they hadn't heard that one. They, they were not going to do it. I'd rather die. So determined to win the favor of his master, or at least the favor of his master's debtors, so that he can have a good relationship with them, the manager determines to recover his name, at least his position, in the job market. The manager contacts his master's debtors and he lessens their debts. Look at verse 4. So that when I am removed, these people will welcome me into their homes. So the manager contacts his master's debtors and he lessens their debts to him. Did, Did you catch it when we were reading it? The manager lowers each of their debts in order to secure a better standing with the debtors who may need to rely uh, you know, on them in the future. So if I'm, I'm jobless, if I'm homeless, who, who am I going to go to? I can't crash on Bill's couch because Bill owes my boss a bunch of money and then it's going to be all weird between Bill and I because Bill owes my boss all this money so I can't couch surf at his, at his house. So the manager figures that if he wants to be able to uh, you know, crash over at Bill's house, he, he better smooth it over with Bill. So he hits up Bill, and he lowers the debt to make things cool. Hey, bro, you owe my boss 50. How about you just give me 10, and I'll make it all good. I'll make it go away. Now, that seems shady, doesn't it? It seems shady. What, what about your boss's money? He's already said you're squandering his stuff. If, if you then turn around and don't get his stuff, what, like, what's, what's going on here? The manager just lowered these people's debts to get on their good side. It's quite selfish. The manager doesn't care about, you know, what is due to his boss. He could be fired already for all he knows, and he's just trying to hustle because the clock is ticking and and old Trump is coming for him and he's about to hear those words, you're fired. His boss isn't going to like this, I would think. But but we read into verse 8 where we left off and it said the master praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. Why is he cool with this? Why is the manager excited that, that he didn't get his money back and that he's essentially cheating cheating him out of what's due to him. Uh, First, the manager's a lazy bum and and got fired and then went to his master's debtors and he's all deceptive in lowering the amount that the master's debtors uh, owed to him in order to gain himself a a future security. Why why would you be cool with that? Furthermore, Jesus uses this parable in a strange way because he says, you, my disciples, should be like this guy. I'm lost in this parable. What what are you talking about, Jesus? 
Is Jesus praising the manager for his unchristian conduct? What's going on in the parable? I'm glad you asked. I'm here to explain. Okay, there's several ways. There's several ways that we can interpretively deal with the parable. Uh, and, and not just deal with it for dealing's sake. We want to understand what our Lord is teaching us as his disciples in this age. The most readily available response is that the text does not show Jesus praising the manager for unchristian behavior, but rather it specifically shows Jesus drawing from a negative example of how to be shrewd in, in planning ahead as the manager, the manager uh, didn't know that he might need to rely on his master's debtors in the future. So you look at verse 8 and it says, for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Un unbelievers are more shrewd, and so he's using a negative example of unbelievers to make a positive lesson with this negative example, and that's a, a common way of teaching in that day and, a, and a, a, a pedagogy that Jesus uses in his parables. In fact, in the, in the Gospel of Luke, if you uh, keep your finger here in chapter 16, but you turn over to chapter 19... Verse 11 through 27 of chapter 19, here's another parable that involves a kind of affluenza in people and money. And here, in, in, the, in the same way, you see a very dark and negative example. And you, and you see a, 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 a master nobleman king guy who, who, who has guys working for him that owe certain things, and you, you read the parable and you see a, a kind of similar thing. It's, a, it's just a negative story that's being used for a positive example. Now back to chapter 16. Another possible interpretation could be that the manager was not being unchristian, but rather the money that he subtracted from their debt was actually his portion of the debt, which then takes into account for personal fees of, of collecting an interest. So he's like, hey, they owe my master this, but a certain percentage of that is my cut and so I'm just going to take myself out of the cut. I'm going to reduce their debts. And so in that regard, he's like, he, he, he's working for free. Like, you know, you have, you have a friend who's a plumber or whatever and comes to your house and helps you and says, I'm not going to charge you for labor. I'm just going to charge you for the parts or whatever. So he, he goes to the debtors and, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to charge you for my labor. I'm just charging you for, for what you owe the master. In which case, that, that, you know, that, that, that handles the riddle of, the, you know, be like this guy. He could be being generous. We know that charging interest and fees was the practice of the day, and, it, and that was a part of this very common oppressive system of debt, bondage, and slavery. Uh, guys would do this by lending a person money. Hey, here's 80 bucks, and then you have them write out an IOU for 120 bucks. Uh, we know from the Jewish historian Josephus, we know that olive oil, which we read here in the text, was a very volatile commodity, and that people charged 100% interest on olive oil. The interest rate on wheat, which we also read about in the parable, uh, we, we know from ancient sources, was 25%. And so that matches the figures that Jesus uses in his parable. Therefore, all the steward did was just kind of drop off the interest and, and you know, solve those things. So that, that's, that's one way we can look at this. Another way of looking at, it, at this could be that the money he subtracted from the amount owed was some sort of late fees. Uh, or, or the interest charges of the master, and hence by reducing those debts, he was cutting them slack by giving them the pay only the actual amount that you owed him deal. Uh, this, this used to happen back in the day at, uh, you, re you remember this place? You remember this place? It was called, uh, what was it called? Blockbuster? You remember that place? Blockbuster? Yeah, there, there used to be one, I think it's like a Starbucks now over in Westchester, that was like the highlight of the week. When you, you, you wrap your school week, you have all your homework, you know, done, and it's Friday, and Pops is like, you want to go to Blockbuster? And you're like, heck yeah, and you walk around Blockbuster, and you, you, you know, you look at stuff, oh, I want this, oh, it's checked out, oh, you know, and you, you get movies, you get movies. In my, in, in my young adult life, I, I got my own Blockbuster card. I think I have it saved somewhere. It's like, I'm an adult. I have a Blockbuster card, you know, and I'm going to get movies, the ones I want to watch, not the, the dumb ones my dad wants to watch. I'm going to go myself and get, get those movies. And then what happens? You get busy, school hits again, and then you realize, oh, I haven't returned those movies, right? And they charge you for that. And and you got to go back with shame and walk into the blockbuster and sort of wait in the line and 
you know, can, can, can you cut me some slack, man? Uh, you know, I, I had a rough week, you know, and, and, and every now and again, they would, they would, you know, it's cool, man, whatever, you know, just pay, just the original, we'll, we'll, we'll you know, they'll, they'll make it go away, okay? So it could be something like that, the old blockbuster phenomenon. A final interpretation could be that this, uh, the third view that I gave you, combined with the idea that the manager paid out of his own personal finances the difference, so that way the, the master would then receive all of his income. In either the third or the fourth case, the manager would be settling his debt with the master and also giving the debtors a break so that he could win uh, their favor and have a good relationship with them and open the door for a couch if he needed a place to sleep or even possible employment to, to work so that he could get out of this system of debt bondage. While all of these are possible, it seems to me that the one that fits the best would be uh, either to say it's just a, a negative example to make a positive lesson or, or, or uh, some combination of the second or fourth view because they both present the manager as shrewd and gen generous, which that would be a positive, and then uh, you know, that makes sense that Jesus is saying be like this. Okay? The third uh, and the first view show him as being shrewd but not generous, so um, maybe it's not those unless it's a negative lesson. But in any case, the point is still the same. Jesus is saying, use money and stuff for having good relationships with people. We live in a culture that uses people to get money. Jesus is countercultural in this regard. He is saying, don't use people to get money. Use money to get people. And with a picture of the manager before us, we're reminded that our money is not our money anyway. It belongs to someone else. We are stewards of it. It belongs to God, so, so we are supposed to be using our money and our stuff how He wants it. Now, moving on, while we may not know exactly which of the interpretive views to take in terms of, you know, uh, the details of the parable, the nitty-gritty details, keep in mind it's a parable, so like, these guys don't exist. It's not, it's not like a real historical example. This is a, a story that Jesus is making up to teach a lesson. So while, while we might not know what the fictional characters and the details of that, the conclusion of the parable is loud and clear. So we've looked at the characters, the conflict, the climax, now the conclusion. The conclusion is, number one, the manager is restored to his rich master, not to mention to his debtors. Secondly, we see in the conclusion that the rich master commends the manager's gathering of debts. Okay, so uh, again, look back at the text. The manager praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. So, so we see the conclusion. We see a restoration between the, the boss and the employee or the master and the slave. And then we see a, a restored relation between those who owed the boss money, and his, his worker, this manager. So then, in conclusion to Jesus' parable or story, everything is cool by the end with the characters. It's cool with the characters. It's all good. It's copacetic. Now let's continue and see how Jesus explains the parable. We move on our outlines next to the point. So we've seen preliminaries, parable, and now thirdly, the point. Let's look at Jesus' application of the parable, and let's keep in mind who our teacher is. The one speaking here in the text is God the Son in the flesh. As I said, Jesus of history is more than a man of history. He's God of eternity. He's God the Son. We worship a God who's three persons in the one God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. This man of history, this Jesus of Nazareth, is God the Son sent of the Father who comes in the power of the Spirit with this teaching to disciple, to make disciples, of these men so that they would found and start the church as he ascends into heaven, empowering their witness in the earth, and we await his return. So, so their, their teacher is God the Son. The, the God that I'm heralding today, the God that we've come to worship, is this triune Lord, this, this God who created this universe, this planet that we are all in. And so we, we couch this story here with Jesus in the greater story of, of God and creation. The God who created the world. The world that rebelled against the God who gave them life. The God who had every right to take life away from them because the wages of rebellion is death, sovereignly chose to graciously give mankind a way out. And that way out wasn't through a third party, it was through the first party, through the Father sending the Son into the creation to, 
to become one of the rebels, albeit without their rebellion in his heart. He becomes a human, and he dies at the hands of rebel humans in order to give his perfect life in exchange for their guilt and shame. This is the good news. This is the gospel of this triune God who created everything and is so amazing and so perfect, and we were so wrong to Him, but He chose to rescue us through the work of the Son. And so as the Son is teaching them this parable, we have that greater story in mind, and we see He wants them to live life in this messed up, rebellious world that's full of these entanglements, affluenza and money and the rest, and to show them another way of living. And that's the point that he's getting at. So, A, under the point, Jesus explains the point of the story. Look at verse 8. He says, The sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. The parable concludes with the rich man praising the manager's recent shrewdness in gathering his outstanding debts. And then Jesus says, Here's my point. Non-believers, the sons of this age, are shrewder than believers, the sons of the light, with their relationships and they're planning ahead with their resources and stuff. They are better with using their stuff to make friends and accomplish their desires than the sons of light are. And Jesus doesn't have his disciples in mind. He has, he has the covenant community of Israel in mind and, the, and these Pharisees who, who aren't giving their stuff to make friends with the outcasts, the outsiders, the poor and the weak in order to bring them into the great promises of the kingdom of God. And let me say that Jesus' point in this parable in the first century is still true today among the, the spiritual and those who self-identify as Christian and these buildings that slap the word church on the side of them in our culture. The, the world is outliving the church. Uh, now, granted, it's not a competition. It's not a sporting event. Unbelievers versus believers. You know, that, that's not what's going on. But believers, we're the ones who are running around talking about God and morality and heaven and hell. Do our lives look better than the rest of the world? I know in my own life, this was one of the things that kept me at arm's distance with God as, as a teenager in particular. I thought the church was full of, of hypocrites um, and socially awkward people, if I can be honest. Um, they weren't the people that I wanted to learn life from. And my point is that the sons of this age should not be outliving and outgiving us. That's Jesus' point. Let's continue and see how Jesus explains this with some further applications of the parable in verses 9 through 13. We're going to see him offering some, some, some more mojo on this thing. Look at, look, at, look, at, look at the text, verse 9. And I say to you, make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it falls fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in very little is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in very little, little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant." No servant, he says, can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So Jesus' first application, let's look at this, is number one, use worldly resources to benefit others. Use worldly resources to benefit others. He says, make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, that's money. Don't just, don't just make friends for the sake of making friends so that you have people to hang out with on the holidays or people to play Fortnite with or, or whatever you're into. Uh, don't, don't just make friends for sake of Fortnites and pictures and uh, posting. You know, don't do that. Make friends for sake of winning them to Christ so that they will welcome you into eternal dwellings, that is, heaven. In other words, not so that they will welcome you into their home so you can sleep on their couch or they can give you a job, but so that you will see them in heaven. And when we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, you'll be going into their houses and saying, hey man, remember how crazy that was 10,000 years ago when I met you and we started to talk about Jesus or whatever and you helped me, you helped me out and man, my life was changed. The money of this world can and should be used as a ministry for the world that is to come. Temporary fortune should never be invested to secure uh, you know, things that aren't going to give dividends in the life that is to come. 
You know you can't take money with you when you die. I've been to a lot of graveside funerals where the hearse pulls up and the body comes out and it's buried in the ground. I have never seen a hearse with a U-Haul attached to it. You can't take your stuff with you. The only thing that you can take with you is people. People. Through the power of the gospel transforming people, you can take people with you. And yet we spend our time living like it's the other way around. We slave for retirement, but not for family and friends. We put hours into maxing out our 401ks, but not to helping a friend move or, or to lending a hand at church. Jesus said that the people of this world are shrewder than believers with their resources. It makes me think about how the world uh, and, and cults in the world in particular use their money. I, I think about the Mormon religion. And, and all the resources that they have and how shrewdly they use those resources to propagate their theology. I've heard that the average Mormon donates over 20% in giving to the cause of their faith, whereas evangelical Christians statistically give about 2% on average. The cults are outliving us. It reminds me of the old story about the guy who came to church with his family um, he, he didn't like going to church. Mom was kind of, you know, holding the family together, going to church all the time, and he didn't, he didn't really like going. He was kind of absentee that way. And as, as they were driving home afterwards in the car, the, the dad was complaining about everything. The music was too loud. I didn't like the music. The sermon was too long. I didn't like the sermon. Those announcements were boring. The building's hot, or, you know, or in our church it's cold. And the people, the people are unfriendly. You know, said hi to me. Uh, and he just went on and on and on, complaining about virtually everything. And then finally his observant son in the, in the back of the car as they were driving said, well, Dad, you've got to admit it wasn't a bad show for a dollar. <laughs> you know, he saw his dad put a buck in the offering plate and gave him a zinger. Wasn't a bad show for a buck, Dad. That's what you get. So there's a first application here of using our stuff, our money, to benefit others. There's a second application from Jesus to use worldly resources faithfully. God wants us to use these things faithfully to make an impact in lives forever and bringing them to Him in generosity and, of course, through the gospel. And as you're faithful with the little things, He's, he's going to give you these greater things, favor with the lost through the power of the gospel. This, this week, uh, I came into contact with a, an incredible ministry. There was a few Christian ladies, and, and, and they saw a need. And, and speaking of the outsiders and the outcasts and those on the margins, they saw a specific need for homeless women in Los Angeles. They saw a specific need, not just for homeless women in Los Angeles, but specifically for pregnant homeless women in Los Angeles. These Christian sisters, they said, we've got to do something about this. Uh, the, the, the tentacles of Planned Parenthood in our culture of death prey on marginalized women to, to, to kill their babies. we got to do something about this. It's not enough for us just to say this is bad. we got to do something. So they took their money, they pulled their money together, they, they buy an apartment complex, they retrofit everything out, and they give free housing to homeless pregnant women so that they can stay their, their full term for free and they can love on them and keep their babies and reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Women without homes, without hope, without anything, they come there and they live for free and they go out then with their child and with equipping and with resources and with connections to find jobs and they have their lives changed socioeconomically and more profoundly spiritually, saved in Christ. What a wonderful use of money. Those sisters will be in heaven going house to house to house, being welcomed into homes of those women that they welcomed there in this ministry in Los Angeles. Uh, yesterday, I, I, I went into a new business that came up in my neighborhood. It's, it's been up for a couple of months, and I finally got the chance to get in there. It's called Second Chance Soul Food. Second Chance Soul Food empl employs those who are formerly incarcerated, hence the second chance. I spoke to one of the owners yesterday as I was getting my family a whole bunch of fried fish and uh, raising my cholesterol. I, I was in there and I'm buying a bunch of fish because I'm given to the cause, right? So, uh, and I spoke to one of the owners who happened to be there. He was incarcerated for 18 years. 
as I'm talking to this guy, I mean, my heart's just getting heavy, and I, I started bringing up the Lord and church and different things, and I don't know where he's at. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to keep using my money to buy that fish to talk to him about Jesus. But organizationally, these three guys got together. They pooled all their money to start a business that is changing people's lives. Everyone behind the counter. They got all kinds of teardrops and tatted up. And, you know, they're, you know they're, I'm asking stories like, yeah, I was locked up for this long. And I'm like, I'm not going to ask what you did, but all right. And then, you know, you're like, you're, you, you guys are using your money to change people's lives. If we're not faithful with our money, we will not be entrusted with revival and evangelism and spiritual things. Because if one cannot take care of someone else's things, they are not going to be entrusted with their own. Look at the passage again. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful in much. Right? Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of your money, I'm not going to entrust true riches to you. What are those true riches? Gospel revival. A steward is one who manages another's wealth. He, he doesn't own it. He uses it for the profit of his master. As Christians, we are stewards of what God has given us. We don't own it. I say my car, but it's not my car. It belongs to the Lord. He, he just loaned it to me so that I would use it for him. Every bit of metal and, and plastic, every bit of glass in my car, and even the duct tape that's holding the bumper onto it, every bit of rust, it all belongs to the Lord. And someday my car will be dropped into some giant compressing machine and be folded up into like a four-inch square recycled and used for someone else's car. I say my house, but I, I don't own it. I'm making payments. Uh, others of you, you're renting, and you, you're, you're aware as a renter how much you don't own it. And even if we did own our homes, picture 100 years from now when your great-grandchildren are standing in front of the house saying to their children, now right along there somewhere uh, in those condos was where you know, great-grandpa Bill used to live. Parents, you say, my children, they're not your children. Psalm 127, verse 3, God's Word tells us that children are a gift from the Lord. We're stewards of them. I, I say my body, but even my body that I'm living in is not mine. That, that is one of the fundamental things that's wrong with the pro-choice and euthanasia movement because they say things like, it's my body, I ought to be able to choose what I want with it, but the Bible tells us that your body is not yours. I think of 1 Corinthians six nineteen. It says just that, that your body is not your own. Your body does not belong to you. Your, your body belongs to the Lord. And never mind the scientific fact that that's not your body, because if it was your body, when you terminated it, you would die, and you don't die in that process, therefore it's not your body. Now back to the passage. The implication is that, that we cannot be faithful in caring for others now with resources at hand, God is, is not to be expected to entrust us with, with greater responsibility of being faithful over future resources and, and great revival and the rest if we are not faithful in these little things. Jesus told his disciples if their enemies ask for a shirt to give them their jacket too. Why? Because you win them over with sacrifice. I don't know about you, but I, I, don't, I'm, I don't do that consistently. You want my shirt? Well, maybe I'll give you this one because it's Amazon Essentials, but if I was wearing a polo, I wouldn't give it up. I love my polos. I'm not giving it up. You want my jacket too? Go get your own. Go get a job. Stop looking for government handouts. <laughs> you, know, you, 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 you go into that mindset, not let me give, because that's what my Lord taught me. On a practical level, of course, we don't really encounter this, someone asking for your jacket, well, in the 90s, there was a, a, a season where people were getting jacked for their Jordans, but I, I surmise not a lot of you uh, face those pressures. But suffice it to say, we, we don't live in a world where people are asking in such manner, but people are asking in similar manners, and the Church of Jesus Christ should be taking off their shirt, taking off their jacket, using their money for purposes of bringing the gospel to people. The implication of Jesus' teaching is that we are here to labor with a future of mind. So his final application here, thirdly, is to be solely devoted to God as his servant and not to be the servant of money. Jesus per personifies money as one who can be served, a demanding master, to be sure, which is, is viewed as mutually exclusive. You can't serve God and money. You can't serve both. It has been said that you can tell a lot about a, ma a man you can tell a lot about who he worships by looking at his checkbook. Checkbooks are out nowadays. How many people even have them? There is that one lady at Ralph's, though, that still holds up the line writing it. You're like, stop, stop, get rid of it. But 
you can tell a lot by looking at your online uh, account and where your money's going, who you're serving. It reminds me of what we read today in our public reading of Scripture at the beginning of service. What do we read? 1 Timothy chapter 6. Hear the word of the Lord, church, for we have brought nothing into the world so we could take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. If you've been a Christian long enough, you've seen this. I've lost a handful of good Christian friends to this kind of affluenza epidemic. They come along uh, some money, they come along some fame, they come along some power, and they wander away. It's painful. It's, it's tragic. It reminds me of the sobering rhetorical question that Jesus asked in Mark 8, 36. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Jesus follows that question with a second question, and he says, for what will a man give in exchange for his soul? I'm reminded of the 1993 movie, which I never saw. The old man wouldn't let me rent it at Blockbuster. Uh, Indecent Proposal. You remember that one? Indecent Proposal. Uh, the, the, the premise of the film is disturbing. It was based on a 1988 novel by Jack Englehard, uh, a story of a rich stranger who offers a million dollars to a financially struggling couple if, if they let the, the woman of that couple spend the night with this rich guy. And in the story, they decide to do it, and surprise, surprise, it results in all sorts of drama. This is the question. At what cost? What price do you put on your body? What price do you put on your spouse? What price do you put on your soul? What price do you put on your children when you decide to you know, stay at work and miss out on their lives and the rest? What price are you putting on these things? There's a story of a man who asks a girl if, if she will sleep with him for $10 million. Of course, she says, $10 million. And then he follows it by offering her $10. And she follows that by slapping him in the face. Who do you think I am, she asks. And the man says to the woman, I know what kind of a woman you are. I was just haggling over the price. Ouch. But with this story in mind, with that parable and this parable in mind, this is what Jesus is getting at and his rhetorical questions about what, would you, what price tag do you put on your soul? What are you living for? What have you given yourself to? This brings us to the conclusion in three quick points. We have uh, looked at preliminaries, the parable, the point. Now let's get practical and let's uh, rev things up as we'll enter into a time of worship and come to the Lord's table soon. What's the main idea of the passage? The main idea is that we're to be solely devoted to God as wise and generous stewards of our worldly resources for His purposes. If I could, if I could boil the, the sermon and the text down to one sentence, that's it. We are to be solely devoted to God as wise and generous stewards of our worldly resources for His purposes. This passage is calling all disciples of Christ to view money with God's eyes. It is a resource and a tool to reach others and, and, and not for the sake of personal wealth. This is a challenging word for our time in which people are drowning in consumer debt. In fact, we are a culture that doesn't save for the future and instead spends for today. Hence, our savings accounts are slim, but our debt is bulging. And that debt keeps us from charity and service. But the thing is, that debt reveals where our hearts are and what we are living for. Jesus warned, Luke 12, 34, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And if this is true, and it is, because our Lord said it, it means that we can look at our, our spending and look at our dreams and, and look at the affluenza of, if I get this, then I'll be happy, phenomenon. Now let's be clear, God isn't asking us to, to give because he needs money. The scripture, the scripture is, is, is quite clear in this regard. It all, it all belongs to him anyway. But the Lord uses these resources for his purposes. If you're in the Old Testament, you see his call for them to give money in, in temple worship, and that's used to provide for the temple staff, and it's used to provide for the, the poor in society of Israel. In the New Testament, in the church, it's, it's called to give financially, and that cares for the workers of this temple, um, pastors and staff and whatnot, and it provides for almsgiving and for the poor and for outreach and more. On a personal level, this, this parable is calling us to depend on God. It's, it's calling us to, to rely on Him. It's calling us to, to view our things differently. 
Jesus is, is rebuking, remember the context, the, the spiritual people of the day who weren't doing that. He's, he's rebuking as a whole the nation of Israel because the nation was withholding in their offerings in the temple. Jesus goes in the temple and shows the exploitation of the poor there and, 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 and he challenges the whole temple system. You guys don't really care about the poor and the marginalized. You guys aren't giving properly for God's house and you're not using your resources for God's things. Look at verse 14. The Pharisees were lovers of money. They were listening to all these things and they're scoffing at them. Verse 15, And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The spiritual elites had a warped view of their wealth. They saw wealth as a blessing from God, like the fake prosperity gospel bootlegger preachers today. God's giving me this money because I'm spiritual. No, no, you're bankrupt, bro. You are bankrupt, Jesus says. The people of the day revered those Pharisees as religious examples to be followed, and many of them, to be sure, were. But the irony in this scene is that the creator of the universe was staring them in the face, and they couldn't see him. Why? Why couldn't they see him? Because they were blinded by their love for money. And it should make us all wonder, how are we blinded by our money and by affluenza? And the sobering reality here is that God knows the heart, that shouldn't be something that you go, oh, that's good. Yeah, he knows my heart. I'm good. Uh, no, 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 because your heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. How do you know that? The Bible says it. He knows the heart. So we can't hide from him. We can hide from others. You can, you can convince others. You, you, can, you can really manicure your life and make it look ever so happy on Instagram, but he knows your heart. In meditating on this passage, I sense the Lord, even in my own life, just dealing with selfishness, self-righteousness, materialism. What a foolish manager I can be. Concerned with buying things to enjoy now rather than eternal investments. I don't want to be like these Pharisees. And if I say to myself I'm not, then I am. It, this, this, is, this is an important thing for you to, to really wrap yourself around. That you can be blinded by these things. And you can, you can find yourself in behavior that is detestable to God and, and not realize it. It reminds me of the story of a preacher who asked a man why he did not join the church. And the reply was to the preacher, the guy said, well, the dying thief didn't join the church and he was saved. Well, said the pastor, if you do not belong to a church, per perhaps you, you can help by supporting missions then. No, said the man, the dying thief didn't help with missions and wasn't he saved? Uh, yes, said the pastor, I suppose he was saved, but you must remember that he was a dying thief, whereas you are a living thief. <laughs> you know, Jesus wants us to use our money and our stuff for him, for him. And when we're not, we're engaging in a kind of thievery. We're, we're, we, are like, we are like this sluggard, this sluggard guy in the parable who's not going to beg, who's not going to dig. He's, he's not, he's not, he's not going to do it. The American dream is a very powerful thing, and we have to be honest with it. It, 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 it leads us in, into places where Jesus' teaching is, is, is going to confront us. And as his teaching confronts us, and as we, we see that we fall short and we stand condemned by his teaching, we realize that we need him which is the second point of application before we close the sermon and come to the Lord's table. We need him. And, and, and he provides, brothers and sisters. Jesus lives out his teaching. He is not asking us to do what he has not already done. The Son of God became a man and suffered and sacrificed everything in his life, also in his death. He didn't die to be a martyr and to get attention and go down in history books. Friends, it, it wasn't the nails that kept him pinned to the cross. It was, the, it was the love of God. It was the love of a Savior who is giving the perfect life that He lived for us. As God, He could have busted off the cross at any moment, but He remained until death took Him. He submitted Himself to death, but death did not keep Him. He rose, and this was for His people. Mind you, so much more than an example when I say he doesn't ask us to do what he hasn't already done, I'm not merely saying look to him as an example. I'm saying look to him as expiation. Jesus was not a mere standard. He was also a substitution. 
Which brings us to the final point. The gospel is my deepest daily need. Amen? If we're honest with ourselves, we squander. We aren't the best stewards. We are self-righteous. It is it's so easy to look at others and go, thank you God that I'm not like them. It is, it is so easy to demonize others. In this tribal culture in which we live, where we in particular have a, a hyper-left and a hyper-right that spend all their live-long day demonizing each other, they're training the church of Jesus to view the world in a particular way that lacks compassion. And we forget that the others, on the other side, the outsiders, those people, that's our mission field. And our hearts should be breaking for them. Our hearts should be breaking for California. Our hearts should be breaking for Los Angeles. Our money and our resources should be being used for bringing people into a relationship with Christ so that when His kingdom comes, we'll be hanging out in houses all around His kingdom and we will see the fruit of a sacrificial life that He has called us to live. The call of the message ends with a call to repentance and faith. See and examine your squandering, your poor stewarding, your self-righteousness. I, I, I know I can't get through this unscathed. I don't know about you. I need His mercy. I, I, I need His perfection in my place. And as we come to the table, that's exactly what we're picturing. We see His body. We see His blood. We see what He has given for us. And we rejoice in that. I used to see your Son. And in that, we're reminded that we can't take credit for seeing the Son. Because it, it wasn't our eyes that did it. It was your Spirit. So we give thanks for the work of your Spirit in regeneration. We cry out to you for the work of the Spirit in sanctification. Lord, sanctify us through your Word today. Oh, that we would leave this room different than the way we entered it. Oh, that we would live more for your people and your mission and your work. Oh, that this day, Sunday, every week would be a joy for us to be your embassy, to gather as your diplomats, to be equipped as your ambassadors, that we can go into the world with this message that is literally transforming the world. Find us faithful in the little we pray today. Lord, as we give today, as we come to the table, and as we sing, Lord, Lord, shape us. Have your way with us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.